You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 31. Today, we're sitting down with David Hunter from Fresno, California, to talk about his experiences being an artist in residence for several national parks, using photography as a way to contribute to local conservation projects, the challenges of doing photography in caves, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I hope your week is off to a great start. Before we dive into today's interview, I just wanted to let you know that the winners of the Natural Landscape Photography Awards were announced yesterday, November 1st. So if you want to check out the incredible winning images, just go to naturallandscapeawards.com. And congratulations to all of the winners and to the organizers and judges for creating a platform that showcases deep connections to natural landscapes. The organizers are now in the process of developing a fine art book of the top photographs alongside essays from the photographers. So keep on the lookout for that and any announcements for next year's competition. Alrighty, I'm excited to bring you today's guest, David Hunter. David was recommended to me by Bree Stockwell, who we had on the podcast in episode 29. So let me give you a brief background on David before we go ahead and roll the interview. David Hunter is a former photojournalist turned landscape and nature photographer that moonlights during the day as an elementary school teacher. David has photographed special projects for several national parks, including biological sky islands in Yosemite, caves in Sequoia National Park, and two bio-blitz surveys in Great Basin National Park. He has also done contract work for the Bureau of Land Management and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, documenting endangered and threatened species. In 2017, David was selected as the first artist-in-residence for the Sierra Foothill Conservancy, documenting their preserves and conservation easements over a year in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains. A year later, David was recruited by the San Joaquin River Parkway and Conservation Trust for another year-long artist-in-residency program documenting protected properties along the San Joaquin River Valley. Also in 2018, David was chosen as the artist-in-residence for Bighorn Canyon National Recreation Area, which is part of the national parks in north-central Wyoming. Then in 2019, David was selected as the first photographer-in-residence for Craters of the Moon National Monument in south-central Idaho. David worked closely with the park to capture intimate portraits of the vast volcanic landscapes. And then most recently in 2021, David was selected as the Night Sky Artist for Capitol Reef National Park in Utah. He spent a month documenting the interaction between the park's amazing geology and the night sky. A significant portion of David's work is centered on awareness and preservation of the natural and cultural environment. He strongly believes it is his responsibility to use photography and education to promote stewardship of the land and awareness of its cultural and natural history. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with David Hunter. David, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you. I appreciate being invited. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've already given the listeners your bio in the introduction, but to start off, I was wondering if you could take us back in time a little bit and tell us about how you made your transition from photojournalism into landscape photography. More so it was, I was actually... I, I delayed college, and that was because I didn't think I was going to college. <laughs> and so I wound up working as a photojournalist instead. And the funny part about that was I wound up going to college part-time using some of my photojournalism skills to basically trade for classes. Oh, interesting. Um, 
And at one point I was meeting with a mentor of mine and I was all ready to get hired onto the newspaper and have all this experience. And he just looked at me. He's like, you're not going anywhere unless you go to college. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, where, where, where would you find a photojournalism program? And he's like, well, I went to Fresno state and I really enjoyed it. And I, that's where I would go. So I started looking into it and, um, moved from, um, Reno, Nevada to Fresno, California, started in the photojournalism program. And after the first semester realized that I was not going to, um, want to be in photojournalism the rest of my life and it wasn't going to work for a family mm, as far mm -hmm. as, you know, the work schedule and stuff. Yeah. So I transitioned to teaching, which I'd already been doing on the side for many years in different aspects. And with that, my photography just went with me. I mean, I just kind of, kind of moved it from photojournalism to other types of photography. I actually started out doing a lot of um, bird photography. Mm -hmm. and uh, quickly learned that my 600 millimeter manual focus lens was not going to cut it <laughs> <laughs> for the kind of bird photography I wanted to do. It was good for still birds, but it wasn't good for anything moving. Right. <laughs> um, and so then I transitioned to macro photography. And the fun part about that was that I, I quickly figured out that there was a lot of um, – concentration at the time of like endangered species and different things like that but like all the really cool endangered species like the kit fox and other focus species already had their own photographers mm, okay. and so i figured out that the scientists who were studying endangered insects and invertebrates were not getting the photography love mm-hmm and so I was able to connect with them and, and photographed endangered insects and invertebrates for a while, including going into caves. Nice. Photographing in caves. Did that for a few years. Uh, worked with BLM quite a bit, photographing different endemic species in different locations. Uh -huh. And again, all small stuff because they just, you know, they didn't know the big time photographers to, to do that. Right. And then eventually it just kind of morphed into the landscape stuff. So interesting. Yeah. So with your background in photojournalism a little bit, do you have sort of a an approach that you take to storytelling when you're creating your landscape images? Do you have a storyline in mind when you're going out in the field? I don't I don't always have the story in mind, but what what I realized the other day I was listening to your interview um with Jennifer Renrick. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about the projects. Yeah. And it suddenly hit me kind of like hitting a wall, I think, that I really enjoy projects. But I think it was my photojournalism background that pushes me in the sense that I I enjoy projects the most if they're assigned. Mm, yeah. And it doesn't have to be like a formal somebody calling me as an assignment, but it, it really helps if I have some kind of mission goal. So for instance, you know, photographing a species that's never been photographed or going to a national park and doing an artist residency, that's kind of like an assignment. Right. right. And, and then I just, my creativity starts firing in all directions and I really get into it. And I've taken lots of pictures in different places of just single subjects and tried to make them into projects and they've been okay, but it feels, I don't know, for some reason, my creativity just sparks more when it, when it comes in an assignment type form. Mm -hmm. And I think that's related to my photojournalism days. Like yeah, you're sent there and you walk into this, sometimes the situation semi-blind and you've got to figure out all the aspects of like, how do I tell the story given these conditions kind of thing. Right. So we'll talk a lot about your artist and residency experiences. Um, but do you often get like a storyline that you're supposed to do when you go onto these projects? Or is it just like, here's the area, find the most interesting thing to say about it? Or or are there, you know, specific conservation stories that these different organizations want you to tell? So um I've done two uh two local residencies for conservation or conservancies. 
Uh, one was the Sierra Foothill Conservancy uh, near me, and then the other was the um, San Joaquin River Parkway. And both of them had conservancy missions, and, and I was to feature their properties and kind of tell the story of, like, help people connect to these locations because um, because their conservancy is not – the general public doesn't get to just walk onto the properties all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was my job to try and feature them. So in that case, there was definitely a storyline of, like, how can you feature the best parts and get the public interested in protecting these places? Right. For parks in general, there hasn't been a theme until this last residency this past summer in Keppel Reef. And that's just because most of the residencies are just very open-ended of like, photograph whatever you want. Sometimes they want you to try and suggest what theme you might be going with. But for the Capitol Reef residency, it was a specific night sky residency. So that, you know, had the theme walking into it of like, okay, I'm limiting everything I'm doing to that to that theme and then t- trying to still tell the story within that frame. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we've already alluded to, you've had the opportunity to work with uh, several national parks in these artists and residency programs and other numerous conservation organizations, which is really fantastic. So what inspired you to seek out these artists in residency programs? Well, it started with those local ones. And um, I'd actually been working for both local conservancies off and on for like 10 years prior to the residencies evolving. Okay. Like I would go on the property. I usually request permission and do a trade of like, I'll give you some images if you give me access and things like that. And, or I'd go and do a small little project. Um, Have you heard of the Meet Your Neighbors project? I came across it when I was researching for the podcast, but no, I hadn't previously heard of it. Yeah. So um, I was one of the first people in California to be the, I guess, the California representative uh, of that project. And um, basically with that project, you're photographing plants and animals in their environment with a mobile studio. And so I focused mine on some flowers up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And then also on one of the conservancy properties, I focused on vernal pools, Mm -hmm. which were seasonal pools on the property. And so all the uh, endemic life that lives in those pools. And a couple of shots, I actually had to get the Fish and Wildlife Department involved because the species were protected. So I needed them to capture them. I photographed them in the mobile studio and put them back. Because I wasn't permitted to handle such a thing. Right, right. That makes sense. And so this was to raise awareness around local species and that sort of thing to the general right. public. Yep. Yeah. And so I'd been doing projects like that for both conservancies off and on for several years. And then one day when I was talking to the Sierra Foothill Conservancy, they're like, well, what do you think about an artist in residence? And it just, the idea never occurred to me. And I was like, no, that's perfect. And I think it's kind of a non-traditional residence in the fact that I, I live like an hour from the property. So I wasn't living on the property. I just would go up on weekends and shoot. But I did it over, I'd say, a six to seven month period mm, Nice um, to get all the properties and try and get the properties in slightly different seasons. Mm-hmm. And then when that was completed, the second conservancy I'd been working with on and off, I'd actually been doing a lot of stuff with their river camp for kids, like photographing their river camps during the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to me and they're like, we want you to do for us what you just did for that prop or that conservancy. And we'll pay you to do it. I was like, Great. okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and then, you know, after doing both of those, I suddenly realized it's like, oh, national parks have these things too. Mm-hmm. And I just started, you know, wildly applying to yeah. whatever I could get. So so for people who aren't familiar with it, could you paint us a picture of what an artist in residence is like in terms of, and maybe it varies by park, but, you know, are you working alone? Or are you working alongside biologists and park rangers on specific projects that are going on in the park? Do you have to interact with the public in any sort of formal way? What are the expected duties that you have as a artist in residence? Right. Well, all of them have an application process. Okay. Um, although the application varies from park to park. Like some of them are like, give us a resume and your webpage. And others are like, we want 12 curated images and 
this really, you know, I, we want you to pick a theme. So it depends on the park. Mm -hmm. um, but all of them, once you get there, it's pretty open as far as um, you can do pretty much whatever you want. Um, if you want to work with the local park um, biologists or do things like that, you're, you can, or you can go out with some of their um, work crews. I've done that a couple of times in different parks. And, but most of them give you a really wide berth of like, just go ahead and do what you like. But all of them do have that public component of where they want you to meet with the public at least a couple of times while you're there. Mm -hmm. So um, typically it's give a presentation. Okay. And if you're for there, there for two weeks, you give one presentation. And if you're there for four weeks, you give two presentations. When I was at Craters of the Moon, I actually did some public talks during the day talking up the nature first principles. Oh, nice. A couple of times a week just to help explain how it applied to that particular park. That's great. Yeah. So you get to pick your topic on what you want to present yeah. on. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully related to the park, but yes. Right. <laughs> and then do you do you get to keep all of the images you create while in residence or do you have to hand those over? entirely to the park you get to keep everything they do ask for some digital copies of stuff that they could use for promotion or to show what you did for them uh, most parks will also want one physical copy and they usually give you a six months to to hand that over of like either you pick your favorite image or maybe the park superintendent works with you to pick an image mm -hmm. and um, then they hang it in a gallery usually that they showcase to the public of nice. the different artists that have been there. And, you know, as a photographer, I'm just one type of artist. There's most parks will accept all kinds of artists, mm -hmm. printmakers and watercolorists and painters and sculptors, um, sometimes sound artists. Oh. Um, I, I think the only kind of artists I've seen most parks not be overly open to are the ones that are shaping the land or like earthen sculpture type stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, that or, makes sense. You know, yeah. Because obviously you don't want to do too much of that within a park. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So how much planning goes into before you start a residency program like this? You know, do you go into it sort of open-ended or do you spend a lot of time coming up with different subjects and compositions sort of pre-planned so that you're making the most of your time there? I try and make the most of my time. I've been lucky in two of the parks I've been to, I've actually been able to be on location prior to the residency. Oh, so nice. that, that gives you just a really, and even one of them was even just for one day, but that just gives you a better sense of where things are. And I think that that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. And then I spend a lot of time on Google Earth flying around, mm. checking different locations. I'm not planning specific shots per se, but I am getting orientated with the park geology, the features, where's the sun rising, where's the sun setting during the time I'll be there. Mm -hmm. You know, in this last residency that was focused on night sky, I had to do a lot more planning in the sense of like, where's the Milky Way rising, where are the different features in the night sky and how do they line up with different park features? Mm -hmm. Yeah, my theme for that one was trying to line up the geology of the park with the sky. Nice. So, so are you using programs like Photopills or Photographers Ephemeris or something like that? Yeah, mostly Photopills, um, a little bit Ephemeris, and then a lot of Google Earth. Mm -hmm. And I think that really helped me in the sense that once I got on location, I was actually a lot more relaxed Yeah. and didn't have to worry about where things were at. Because if I suddenly thought, oh, I want to shoot the moon, and I know it's setting in this direction. I knew which way to go and what park features to line it up with. Like I wasn't scrambling. Right. Because it, it's like I knew what features in the park face that direction. And then I knew what general direction to head to get those things. Right. And so it was really sort of weather was the only thing you really had to worry about. <laughs> right. So I was hoping that you'd share a little bit about two of your other projects. One was of the biological sky islands in Yosemite. And the other one was photographing caves in the Sequoia National Park. And yeah. neither of these are subjects that people would normally think of first when you hear Yosemite or Sequoia National Park. Right. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, could you explain what biological sky islands are for people who might not be familiar? And what was your role in that project? 
So um, that was a project I talked to myself onto <laughs> as opposed to into. <laughs> so, um, and basically is a team of scientists from Yosemite, um, plant biologists mostly, who were doing yearly monitoring supported by the Yosemite Conservancy where they were um, monitoring some kind of plateaus up in the uh, Tuolumne Meadows or just beyond Tuolumne Meadows area. It's Mount Dana area, actually. Mm-hmm. And they're, the, the plateaus are very high in elevation. And so you just get unique and endemic plant species that grow in that area. Hmm. So what they were doing is they were going up and measuring off grids Previously, they had everything GPSed, and then they were documenting over several years the number of plants within the grid and okay. the, the variety of plants in the grid and so on. And then they had these grids set up or marked off for different parts of the mountain. So we would do one grid, and then an hour later, we'd hike up to the next grid. And Some of them were at the very top of the mountain. So I got to go up and just hang out with them, basically, and document their work. Hmm. So you were mostly t- taking pictures of the plants or were you taking pictures of them studying the plants? So it was more yeah. about their project. It was both. Yeah. It was documenting the work on the mountain or in these in these regions. And then so one was called the Dana Plateau mm-hmm. and the other the others were in and around Mount Dana, which is um, right before Tayoga Pass uh, okay. drops down onto the eastern side of the Sierras. I actually want to go back now and shoot some um, like night sky because from the top of Mount Dana, you've got um, some very nice views of Mono Lake mm. um, and that whole eastern side. So it yeah. just takes a little while to get up there. Um, yeah. So yeah, mostly them and their work. But as you know, along those photojournalism lines of telling the whole story of like, I was also photographing some of the plants. Um, I will say the hardest part about that project was I was with a plant biologist who was um, very particular mm. <laughs> about the way I depicted her plants. And it's it, it can be very difficult to please somebody like that when you're, yeah. I mean, you're looking at it and you're like, okay, it's, it's, it's a grass. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you're trying to photograph it. She's like, but you need to get it from this angle. And I want to accentuate these features. And it's like, I, I did my best, but I don't know if I, I pleased her totally. Yeah. I did a great job of documenting what they're doing. I don't know if I got all the plant portraits she, the way she wanted them. But. Yeah. Yeah. So was the, was the photography for them? Uh, for the plant biologists, and so like, was this for their research? Um, yeah, publications just to give them and documentation. Sort of... I see. And I think I actually got a, if I remember correctly, I think the Sierra Conservancy gave me part of a grant to help do it. Oh, it's nice. Um, That's great. It's been a while, so I can't remember the exact fundamentals, but yeah. somehow I talked myself to also, or I talked them into paying me just a little bit to go do it. So, well, which good. is always a bonus, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. And so the other one was caves in Sequoia. And so uh, what are some of the technical challenges that you found in doing photography inside caves? Uh, Well, the first would be not knowing how to cave. (laughs) (laughs) Not being a spelunker. (laughs) Spelunker. Oh, and that's a whole nother story. I can tell you that one. Yeah, Um, that'd be great. So not just the caving aspect, but not knowing the ropes aspect, because some of these caves require rope work. Oh, interesting. Um, and so you need to know. So I actually had to do some training on ropes to just have the fundamentals, because in a few of the caves, you had to drop down, you know, 50 feet or something by rope and climb back up. Wow. In um, the dark. <laughs> yeah. And so that actually got me involved in the whole caving community for about five years. Oh, wow. Uh, which cool. is very active in this area because of Sequoia. Sequoia has a lot of caves hmm. um, that most people don't know about. And California's longest cave is actually in Sequoia National Park. It, well, technically it's between Kings Canyon and Sequoia, but is in the park. And it's not, it's over five miles of passage, but it's not continuous wow. passage. It's, you know, different levels of passage. Okay. And the fascinating part about that is they've actually had a research cabin that's been located next to the cave that they've been using to study it for the last 50 years. But it's just outside the window of 
of historic. So there's been arguments for many years over whether the cabin should stay or not because it's not historic, but it's used for research. You know, mm. if we wait long enough, it'll be historic. <laughs> right, and so hanging out with the cavers and the caving community, I I quickly learned that spelunking is something you do as a hobby. And oh. cavers are the ones who rescue spelunkers. Oh, interesting. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> so spelunkers are the guys who come across a cave and it's like, oh, let's go look at this. Right. Cavers are the ones who go in there with like the full body suits and a plan. Right. And they know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they always carry three sources of light. I've oh, interesting. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So, but um, obviously keeping the equipment clean and dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in is caves. it really wet inside? I've, I've never actually spent time in caves. So well, it depends on the cave. A lot of caves are dry. Okay. Uh, some caves are wet where you're traveling through water or other areas to, you know, wetter areas to get through. I actually was able to use that experience and, and got paid by Great Basin National Park to document in some of their caves. Oh, nice. And one of those caves was extremely muddy. And that was the first time I'd worked in that condition. Mm-hmm. But I had a container that I would bring the gear in with to protect it. And here's the really fascinating part, and it's another little caver thing that goes on that's very strange. Cavers are very proud of how they can twist and turn and squeeze their bodies through very unnatural positions (laughs) (laughs) to get into places. And I I kid you not, one of the favorite caver games at Christmas time is to take a coat hanger made out of wire, open it up a bit without cutting it, and to pass your entire body through this hanger. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So, and if you're really talented. So, because of that, I I had the gear in this, I guess it's like a raw pharmaceutical container that was a, a tub that was one foot deep and one foot wide and then had a hard top, so it was hard sides. And then mm-hmm. I would pad the gear inside. And so that would be my waterproof, dustproof container that I'd bring the gear in with. Once I got to wherever I was photographing, I'd take things out, photograph, put it all back in carefully, put it back in my backpack. I see. And so being on these different expeditions with the cavers, I got to a cave one point and my container would not fit through the passage. Oh, no. <laughs> You can and I told them, I was like, if my container doesn't fit, I'm not going. Right. Because <laughs> I'm not into caving for the thrill of squeezing my body through really tight spaces. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm into caving to, to, for the opportunity to photograph small, you know, unphotographable species that have rarely been seen Yeah. by, by the outside world. So were you able to ever get through that? Or no? Uh, no, that one we we skipped. Yeah. So. So what were kind of, what were the types of species that you were finding in those caves? So there's a lot of centipedes, millipedes. Uh, I want to say diplurans. Yeah, diplurans is like a cockroach-looking thing. Mm-hmm. They don't. Um, a lot of these species don't have pigments. Oh, interesting. That makes sense. And, they're in the dark. Um, so if you found this information, you saw some of my photos on Flickr. I think. No, actually, I didn't go to your Flickr account. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I will send you that because, yeah. um, I mean, it's old. Because I don't have most of these on my new website. But um, the we're, the scale is pretty um, incredible. Like, I've photographed, I've brought in stuff to photograph um, some of these things for scale. And so I have a millipede climbing on a pencil. And, like, the pencil lead is bigger than the millipede. Oh, my gosh. So we're talking super macro. Yeah. Um, usually the Mac at the time I was using a Nikon D200 and I had a 105 macro with three extension tubes. Wow. <laughs> which poses its own challenges in just keeping steady. Right. And trying to keep your focal plane when you're, you know, in a really uncomfortable position leaning up against rocks and trying to get something that's moving at that scale. In focus. In focus. And then I had some macro flashes that would help, Um, you know, obviously freeze. But I actually had to, um, I had one of the cavers help me engineer a couple of um, LED lights Mm -hmm. that that I would clip to the end of the macro lens 
and they acted as actually pre-focus lights to light mm -hmm. my subject enough so I could track it and then fire the flashes. Like I knew that I could sense. get the picture with the flashes. I just needed enough light to track what the subject was doing without using the headlamp, which was too much and it was blowing out things. Huh. So, and how did the creatures, you know, respond to light if they are, if they don't normally see it, did they run away or freeze or? Yeah, I mean, was there... as, as anything, they're usually trying to move away from you. Yeah. They wouldn't typically freeze. Usually you'd find them moving around. And a lot of these creatures are blind. Okay. Um, so I don't think the light is affecting them that way, but they find their food by, you know, feeling around. There is a lot of species of um, what are called pseudoscorpions. Okay. And they look just like scorpions, only they don't have the tail. So they have the two pinchers and they have the scorpion-shaped body, but they don't have the tail. They can't sting you. Yeah. yeah, and none of these are harmful. Like, they're so tiny, you know, they wouldn't be able to bite you if they wanted to, just because their parts are too small. Yeah, well, that's good. How about bats? Did you run into bats in the caves? Um, occasionally. Um, normally, bats are in the more protected caves, and they have, a, like, a different group of scientists that work with the bats and study the bats. Mm -hmm. So, and typically when we were doing or these these invertebrates surveys, as they were called, we would go in at the time when the bats were not using the cave. So I because, I mean, the bats were considered first inhabitants. And if they were present, then we weren't allowed to go in and survey, which is good. And I did some of that um, meet your neighbors with the cave invertebrates, too. Yeah. Well, if you send us the the Flickr account, um, I'd be happy yeah. to put that in the show notes with your other links. Yeah, I, I apologize. I, it's so old, like it's been going for 15, 20 years, so I haven't thought about it much but right it is yeah. there and you know how we as photographers we all are it's like let's put out our newest stuff but right <laughs> but it is part of my story so. yeah yeah that's great so what ways do you think being an artist in residence has shaped your photography over the years and and how you connect with nature i i think i just love being able to be in one place to tell the story for so yeah. long Another realization I've had is that I live in, in Fresno, which is only two hours from Yosemite. Mm -hmm. um, I can get into Kings Canyon within an hour, um, and Sequoia is a little bit further. But I don't enjoy photographing Yosemite like so many other people do. But I like taking the same techniques that people use to photograph Yosemite and and taking it you know, to the other parks. Mm -hmm. So why not photograph Yosemite? You know, I think... Uh, and I have photographed Yosemite. I just, I like the unique stuff in Yosemite. And when I say unique stuff, I just mean like away from tunnel view. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm going to be honest here. It's intimidation. <laughs> like <laughs> Michael Fry and, <laughs> and William Neal. And it's like, I am just intimidated <laughs> yeah. to try and stand a tunnel view and get the shots they get. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'd rather go to Kings Canyon and Sequoia and do something different. Yeah. No, so, I hear that. Yeah. Because I, I really respect the work, but I mean, I'm taking what they're doing. I mean, both of them have really modeled, um, really modeled how to photograph one location over and over again. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and study your location. So that's what I really enjoy about the residencies is like, it's not, you know, a long time, but spending a month or even two weeks in one place is is better than going up for a day trip. For sure. So. Yeah, I live in Vermont. And so I'm very fortunate in that going out into the wilderness is pretty easy to get to. Yeah. And um, I find that I can work on my photography so much more by focusing on the local landscape, even if I've gone to the same waterfall a gazillion times or the same trails I'm always going to see something a little bit different the next time I go out. And and that's all helpful for then when you do take those more farther afield trips. Right. And and I will say I, I was able to be on a project two summers ago. I had a friend who had photographed once before. Are you familiar with the diving board in Yosemite? It's right next to Half Dome. I've actually so, never been to Yosemite. Okay. Yeah. So it's not... It's not easy to get to. It's like a six-hour hike. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, 
and it's right on the edge. It overlooks the valley. So we're talking like 2,000 feet vertical drop off the edge. But he had a picture of his tent set up next to Half Dome at night with the Milky Way arching over Half Dome. Wow. And this is the opposite side of the cable. So it's actually the side of Half Dome that faces Glacier Point. Okay. And so he was going back. And I was like, hey, I really want to go with you because I want to be up in that location. It's something unique. Not everybody can go there. It's certainly not tunnel view because you need to you know, have some skills to get up there. And he's like, well, I'm doing that my second day. But my first day, I'm doing this project. And do you want to tag along for that? And I need somebody to hike with. And I was like, oh, sure. Uh, you know, And I convinced him to bring me not knowing what I was talking myself into. <laughs> Um, and it turns out that him and two other friends were hired by a guy who was climbing Half Dome for his 50th birthday. Wow. For the 50th time. Wow. With 50 of his friends. <laughs> <laughs> and they were hired to time-lapse the thing. Oh, what fun. So they uh, all took different positions around Yosemite on different mountains. And we got the position that was across, like kind of behind Half Dome, that was like 11 miles off trail. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I mean, we started at Glacier Point, but I think the first few miles were on trail and then we had to go off trail the rest of it, which was tough. Yeah. I, I think it took us 11 hours of hiking. And we finally got to our location right before sunset, which is when we were supposed to start filming. Like, wow. I was just the tag along. And I got a photo from that location that I love. And it's unique to Yosemite and I love about Yosemite. But it's it's something unique for me where you know not a lot of people have. Right. So and then the next day we were crazy enough to then descend nearer where our location was, like down a 45 degree steep hill. With seventy pound packs, <laughs> oh, goodness, <laughs> cross cross Little Yosemite Valley and then go back up to the diving board where we spent the next night. Wow, um, yeah, you must have been sore. <laughs> so in both of those experiences, I got unique pictures of Yosemite that I was very happy with. Yeah, but if I just drive into Yosemite and I look at tunnel view or, or valley view. And I think of all the great pictures that those other photographers have taken. I'm just intimidated. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know what I can do here. That hasn't been done. Right. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, it is a a very heavily photographed location. So it is hard. I I can understand that. So you've spent a lot of time immersed in, in these landscapes that are conserved or protected in some way. So I'm wondering, what are some of the impacts, either positive or negative, that you've observed that we humans have had on the landscape? And if they're negative, what do you think we could be doing better? So something I realized when I was at Craters of the Moon was I was learning about the nature first stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, that same year was the year that the poppy fields went off in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And everyone was going and then making their own trails. And I got images of that, not from the poppy fields, but from the internet. And I was using those in my talks at Crazy the Moon saying, look what happens when you go off trail and you trample things. But I was like, I'm standing in a volcanic landscape. How could this have any impact? But then I quickly realized walking around that um, if you go off trail in, you know, a volcanic landscape or let's say um, Utah desert and you've got that cryptobiotic soil like you can leave your mark and you you know your foot slides a little bit in volcanic rock and your print is there right and then people see that and it's like oh that must be a trail right and then they all go there so you're making that impact without even realizing it yeah um so i've seen that um when i was in capitol reef national park i collected all the trash i could find whenever i was on trail Mm I think the benefit was that I was hiking at night, so there wasn't, I didn't see all that much trash. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But on the other hand, the park was just really clean. So I was really impressed. That's great. So, I mean, there's good, you know, good mice. But I mean, I have seen the impacts. I've seen the parks talking about. I've seen a lot more in the last few years of those, um, I want to call them recreational cairns. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and They're I popular around here too. It's really I annoying. go out of my way to knock those over if I <laughs> if I know that they're not a trail marker. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what started that trend, but I have seen it grow around here too, especially in rivers and waterfalls and streams that I've photographed over the years. Now, if I go back, you'll see all these series of little cairns everywhere. And it's like, well, these weren't here before. Like, and you don't need a cairn in the middle of a river <laughs> or a right. stream. Yeah. So it's annoying. It's not as permanent as, you know, sketching your initials into a tree, but it's similar. This seems really unnecessary. Right. Like even before I was doing the residencies, I was taking like two week trips in the summer to different parks and just kind of camping or backpacking to just, you know, get out in nature for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, um, I mean, we can talk about this if you want, but it's kind of my balance to my, my career. Yeah. So tell us more. I know you're a kindergarten teacher. Yes. So tell us how it balances out for you. Well, the the funny thing is that both both aspects, being a, a kindergarten teacher and then being a photographer, takes a lot of creativity mm-hmm. and kind of being on your toes and rapidly adapting to different situations. Yeah. But I do find that as a teacher, there's definitely times where my creativity is firing and I'm going strong. But as I start to get burnt out a little. I will go take a photography trip and that revives me where during the summer I get photography intensive mm-hmm. and I ended my residency in Capitol Reef in mid-July and I, I have not picked up my camera since wow. I got back because I got into the school mode right? and I just haven't had that desire. I'm, now I'm starting to get that photography itch again. Yeah. I think I'll scratch it in December. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they kind of they, they really balance me as far as if one is starting to drain me, I get revived by the other and vice versa. Yeah, that's great. So I mean, even though they're both creative endeavors, do you think that they're using different parts of your brain or is one more introspective and the other one is more sort of external to you? Well, and and I would definitely say that one is more introverted and one is more extroverted. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, as the teacher, I have to always be on and entertaining kids and getting their attention and thinking of creative ways to keep their attention. Right. My kids are um, four when they come to me and they turn five by December. And so, you know, they're young. And when you've got 14 of them, 14 (laughs) four-year-olds, it's a lot of energy. It sure is. Yeah. And I have one two and a half year old, so I can't imagine having 14 with that level of energy. Yeah. And I guess also it's, you know, they're both creative practices, but, you know, one, you're sort of being, you're being on and creative for someone else, your children in your class versus being creative in your own right. And, you know, whatever is inspiring you in that moment to be creative through your photography, it's sort of different. Right. And, and I'd say that one of it requires creativity that's concrete and the other is creativity that's more abstract. Because mm-hmm. when you're trying to compose a landscape photo, you're it's not necessarily you're composing an abstract scene, but you're thinking in the abstract of like, what elements do I want here and things like that. Where in the classroom, I'm constantly trying to like, how do I get this kid to engage? Right. Like, what can I do in the next few minutes that's going to get this kid engaged? Yeah. What voice can I use? What silly thing can <laughs> I say? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So is there any call to action that you would want an aspiring landscape or nature photographer to take to contribute to the natural world in in a better way? I'd say pay attention to your surroundings. Um, Sort of like the nature first principles of like know where you're going and what what is um, possible there. Mm -hmm. You know, some parks allow light painting, some don't for the night photography aspect, you know know when it's okay to go off trail or or not Mm -hmm. and you know obviously it's not worth the photograph if you're damaging the environment right and and i mean even from my cave days of like so many of us just don't realize how small the world is around us that you could be impacting by moving the slightest thing right yeah i i mean i've been in caves where it's the only known cave in the world that this species exists and wow. just lives in this one location. Right. Yeah. So 
I misplaced my knee into the mud and I could be killing the last of the breeding pair or something. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. You just got to be super cognizant of those things. So I noticed in your portfolio that you have a mix of color and black and white images. And I'm always curious to find out, you know, what makes a photographer choose one or the other. So I was wondering, you know, what sort of creative or technical decisions do you make when you're trying to determine whether to make an image in black and white or color? I find that rather easy because I shoot everything in color. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, I don't know. Sometimes it's just feel. Um, I mean, there's definitely been images where I've just played around and say, I wonder how this would look in black and white. Mm -hmm. But there's been other images like it's spoken to me in black and white right from the start. Um, I actually have a camera that's converted to infrared. Oh, cool. And so um, the interesting part about that is I hate the look of infrared color, but I like the look of infrared black and white. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I'm shooting my infrared camera, it doesn't look anything like what the end product's going to be because it's a totally red screen. Mm -hmm. But I can envision what the the way the leaves on the plants are going to turn white within the infrared spectrum. Mm -hmm. And um, so I guess I'm shooting for that black and white mindset whenever I'm shooting the infrared. Yeah. Um, And then sometimes it, it just cleans up the image too. Like it's a messy picture to process in color. And it's like, if you go to black and whites, the tones seem to be easier to work with than trying to get the blue and the purples to play along with each other. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have any defined process. A lot of it is by feel. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So do you think you'll ever go full-time as a photographer or you stick with? I don't think so. And yeah. and the reason is because I, I enjoy the balance I have. Yeah. I mean, as a teacher, I get a lot of time off mm-hmm. as far as like I get a week at Thanksgiving, three weeks at Christmas, and then I only get two months at summer. And I know people are like, oh, you only get two months. But <laughs> But it's that balance that I really enjoy of the two creative pursuits that keeps me and um, teaching does pay the bills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and it's something I enjoy. So I don't see any reason to try and go full time. Mm -hmm. Makes uh, sense to do that. Yeah. Um, well, so a, a previous guest on the show, Bree Stockwell, was the person who got me in contact with you. She she thought you should come on the show and you'd be a great fit. Um, yeah. And she shared with me your parody Instagram account, yes. uh, which I found to be hilarious. And so can you tell us a little bit about the account um, and what was your motivation behind creating it? So I'm going to this is going to be a funny process to walk through here, but okay. <laughs> um, are you familiar with Sarah Lindsay no. up in Canada? I'm trying to think of where she's in the northern, not northern territory. She's Alberta, I think. Okay. Anyways, um, Banff area. Yeah. And so she does a lot of self-portraiture mm-hmm. um, on like her standing out in the middle of a lake, taking pictures of herself. And so she was being interviewed actually by Matt Payne about her process. And I think, it was right during, right after the pandemic started. And it was a few months into the pandemic where we're all feeling like I can't go anywhere. All the parks are closed. Right. What am I going to do? And as I was listening to her interview, Matt asked her what the male equivalent of her would be. <laughs> and they both came up with Josh Cripps. <laughs> <laughs> And so when I thought of Josh Cripps doing these self-portrait things, I immediately thought, well, what would be the opposite of Josh Cripps? <laughs> and that's how I came up with my parody account. <laughs> so a guy in his mid-40s with a wife beater and aviator sunglasses doing these ridiculous poses. <laughs> In these natural scenes. Right. Yeah. So trying to be the influencer, but basically mocking the influencer right. culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm mocking hard. I'm just trying to be silly about it. Yeah. Really. No, it's definitely playful. And that's what I like about it. And, uh, you know, there's that Instagram account called Insta Repeat. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah. 
that it's just like, okay, come on, guys, like, stop. You know, we don't need another feet out of your tent overlooking a beautiful mountain range. You know, all those things that are so typical on Instagram. Oh, and that's where I thought of like, well, nobody sees, you know, a middle-aged man in a wife beater doing these kind of very serious poses right. <laughs> in front of the lake. <laughs> As like, that's something I haven't seen. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I didn't even get to get started on that when I got the idea. I just, it kind of brewed in my head. But I will say the other serious advantage to, um, oh, I titled my model Hunter David. Mm-hmm. So I just reversed my name around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the serious advantage to being Hunter David is I'm definitely playing a character. Right. But the costume is just the shirt and the pair of aviator glasses. So all I have to do is have that in my backpack. And then when I see a location that really speaks to me as Hunter David, right. I change and set up the camera for self-timer and, and I get into it. So Yeah, no, I love the goofiness around it, you know, <laughs> just for Yeah, fun. Brie helped me do a shot when, we were, when she came to visit me in Capitol Reef and we went out to Goblin Valley, uh, which is, has a lot of those hoodoos. Yeah. And I was walking around and I suddenly found one that was very phallic looking. (laughs) I was like, this is perfect. (laughs) And so I did these funny poses and I sent one to my wife and she's like, wow, that's phallic looking. And I was like, really? I didn't notice. (laughs) And she's like, are you kidding? I said, of course I'm kidding. That was the whole point. (laughs) Right. so Uh, it's too funny well uh, i'll put all the links in the show notes but just real quick where would people find both your your serious instagram account and your parody instagram account sure um well my general website is the davidhunterphoto.com and then you can find all my landscape work at photo hunter and that's h-n-t-r so p-h-o-t-o h-n-t-r um on Instagram. And then my parody account is Hunter Dov, or Hunter underscore David and D, David is D-A-V period I-D because okay. they wouldn't let me put the apostrophe in oh, that's <laughs> when I was trying to make the, <laughs> the account name. Yeah. Because it's usually with the apostrophe. Right. So. So what's next for you? Are you, are you going to be applying for, for more artists and residency programs, do you think? Um, I've actually applied for four already. All so right. We are in the start of application season. Okay. Um, because a lot of parks, especially the big ones, will like some of the big ones actually start in June for the following year. Oh, wow. Um, so every park has its own little rotation of when their application goes out. There's a lot of them that come out in usually in January. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the parks that are trying to get ahead of the ball have released theirs in September. So um, the deadline is closing for, I think, three parks tomorrow. So I've already applied to those. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually had a couple of people reach out and ask for advice on how to apply. Mm-hmm. So I'm always happy to answer those kind of questions just because yeah. I think more artists should be helping each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so are, is there like a, you just go to the nationalparks.gov website to search for potential residencies so or actually if you just google national park artist residencies it will give you a map of every park that has a residency oh nice but then you're going to have to do your research as far as looking when their application opens or if it's currently open mm-hmm. like some parks um, do it every other year some parks have closed them down for a couple of years grand canyon just opened theirs this year after being closed for like five years hmm. Okay. So it just all depends on the park. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's also a few, I mean, there's a few state parks that do it as well. Oh, that's good to um, Alaska has a very interesting program. If you are outside Denali, they actually have a program where you can apply for 12 different residencies all at once. Wow. Um, and they're all over the state in different parks, but they have 12 different spots. That's great. So, yeah. Um, I haven't gotten one of those yet, but those would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, some of them are very short of like you go out actually with a biologist for 10 days and they provide you all the food and they fly you in somewhere and you're going out in a rough country. And there's a different one. I think it's Wrangell St. Elias where you actually are alone in a cabin for a minimum of six weeks. 
Wow. In, in grizzly country. <laughs> so, wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a lightning round? Oh, yes, definitely. Excellent. I've All been right. mentally preparing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is one piece of gear you can't live without that's not your camera or tripod? All right. My stone bag. Your stone bag. What is that? My stone bag. So I have a bag that hangs between the tripod legs. And it's not oh, yeah. really a bag. It's more like a piece of fabric that attaches the three legs. And it weighs nothing. Cost me $15. But whenever I go to a location, I can just pile rocks or whatever's close by into it. And it locks down the tripod. Oh, nice. And it, And so you don't have to pack in a sandbag or have to worry about having this big heavy tripod when you can just have the stone bag. And so does it hang from the center column or is it actually attached to the legs somehow? Oh, no center columns here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go down that road. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> um, it hangs from each leg. It's, it's, um, it's basically a triangular piece of fabric that um, has straps that you attach to each leg. Gotcha. I see. Cool. So, but again, when you're not using it, it just tucks up within the legs and you close, close the legs and it, again, it weighs nothing. It's just a few ounces. Right. Um, but it's very strong. And so when you set up your tripod next location, I just go grab the nearest big rock and I set it inside or a few rocks. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so what's your preference, photographing the grand landscape or a small scene? 50-50. I'm leaning more towards small scenes lately. Yeah. Um, but I still enjoy a good grand landscape shot. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. Uh, so in your opinion, what's the best light to photograph in? Hmm. I would probably say, um, ah, for infrared, it's it's daylight. Yeah, that makes sense. So because you're using the, the sun's... Um, reflection like the infrared reflection on the plants and different materials to help highlight them you get this kind of glowy effect so cool yeah uh, during the middle of the day is perfect timing for infrared photography excellent <laughs> um if you have the opportunity to only go to one national park again which one would you choose and why i would probably say um i want to say Probably Craters of the Moon. Yeah. And I say that because when I first got the residency there, they asked me if I want two weeks or a month. And I visited, I was able to visit for one day the year prior to going. And I looked at the landscape, which is all volcanic, basically old lava flow. Mm -hmm. And it's in Idaho. And I looked at, and the first thing I said is like, I don't know if there's a month's worth of material here. <laughs> because it's all black rock. Right, right, right. But after spending two weeks, I didn't feel like I had enough time. Yeah. Like there's so much more I wanted to explore or get out and find the textures and the patterns and the different lava flows. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. 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 Okay. So last question. Uh, what does connecting with nature mean to you? So connecting with nature for me is um, when I'm, when I'm doing my photography out in nature, it's the grounding experience. Um, I just feel grounded uh, when I'm out, you know, either just experiencing nature or trying to photograph. And I'm walking around. I'm usually alone, but sometimes it's with others as well. Mm -hmm. um, and just looking for those compositions, I just helps me um, feel connected to. I guess, connected to the earth and, and what I'm doing. And I just really enjoy that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like it's rejuvenating too for you. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. It was a really great conversation and getting to know more about you and your work. Um, if people wanted to see your photography, why don't you give us your website again? And, and again, I'll put all of the links in the show notes. Sure. It's uh, davidhunterphoto.com. And then um, the Instagram for my landscapes is the photo hunter. That's uh, 
P-H-O-T-O-H-N-T-R, so no vowels in Hunter. Mm-hmm. And then my parody account is Hunter David, and that's Hunter underscore David with a period between the uh, V and the I. Okay. They wouldn't allow me to do the apostrophe. Right. <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, I hope we keep in touch and uh, best of luck with your residencies coming up. I hope I hope you uh, land one for this year. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Hunter. And again, all of the links and other information mentioned today are in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 31. Again, thank you, David, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode and maybe you'll be inspired to seek out an artist in residency somewhere. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you took a moment to rate and review it, share it with somebody else or buy me a coffee through the link in the episode description. This works like a podcast tip jar and it helps me cover the costs of production and anything left over goes towards buying carrots and apples for our pet cows, Miss Bovine and Ferdinand and they very much appreciate the treats. So thank you. Coming up on the podcast, we'll have Virginia-based fine art landscape photographer Michelle Sons on to talk about her recent transition to freelance photography, ways to creatively connect with the landscape, how she creates dreamy and ethereal moods in her images, converting her Honda Element into a camper van of sorts, and a whole lot more. And last but not least, I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll answer your submitted questions. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you will be able to record your short message. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.